Let's get into it. Zechariah chapter 7. As we begin Zechariah chapter 7, let's remember that this book is about the work, the work of the Lord. The context of this book is that the children of Israel are now going back into the land that they were conquered out of and taken in exile to Babylon for 70 years. And so now they're going back, and that was all prophesied, that they would be taken, that they'd be 70 years, and then uh, a gentleman named Cyrus would write a decree allowing them to go back. That was all prophesied, and that's what happened. So now they're back. They're back in the land out of uh, over a million Jews that went to Babylon, 50,000 about, went back. So uh, not very many in comparison to how many went to Babylon. Those who went back, they had a task. They had a work that was uh, given to them, and that was primarily to build the temple. Uh, I should say rebuild the temple. So the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And so 70 years of exile, now they're back, land's desolate, and they have a task of rebuilding the temple. Well, like a lot of times, it, and the initial excitement only lasts so long if we don't have a deeper purpose for why we're doing what we're doing. And that's what happened. The work got tough. They started to get challenged. They started to have people named Sanballat, people like that, come and interfere with the work. All these little irritations, distractions, opposition, till it got to the point where they just didn't want to do it anymore. They had done enough work where they felt like this is enough. We can go on with our lives. And as we go on with our lives, we just have enough of the temple there where we can kind of do some temple ceremonies and in particular, they rebuilt the altar so they could do sacrifices. They cleaned the rubble out and they started to build the foundation and then it just got too hard and they, they quit. So the context, or I should say the implications in the context of what we're looking at for us is, first of all, the work. God has a work for us to do. If we're a Christian, we have a work that God has called us to do, His work, the work of of the Lord. We may have not engaged in that work yet. We may have be in a place where we didn't really know about there's a work and there's a thing and there's gifts and spiritual empowerment and all of that. So we may not know that yet, but I want to tell you if you don't know that there's a work that God has for you to do and uh, you will not be fulfilled in life until you engage in the work that he's called you to do. And when you engage in that work, there will be nothing more fulfilling than doing the work of the Lord. So you may have engaged in that work and you may have gotten tired and you may have kind of eased back a little bit. You may like the uh, Israelites who have returned. You may have started and it was fun and exciting and then it got hard and then it got real, got uh, difficult. You started to get opposition from Satan and from the distractions and from the cares and concerns of the world. So maybe you have eased off a bit. But that doesn't mean the Lord's plan for the work that he has for you has eased off a bit at all. So in the book of Zechariah, we are being encouraged through the prophet as he's encouraging the children of Israel to get going. That 
engage in the work and that they'll have the power of God to finish what they've completed and what may seem like a small thing, what may seem like something that doesn't matter, is something that is so grand that it actually is going to be something where the glory of God is going to come and it's actually going to be things that set up the future kingdom called the millennial kingdom when Jesus comes the second time. So it's the same with us. As we engage in whatever work it is the Lord has for us, the work that he has, he'll empower us to do that. And when he empowers us to do that, we experience the power of God in that work in a way where we won't experience the power of God if we don't do that work. And this power of God is a work that he does through us to enable us to do something that we on our own can never do and will not do. But as he empowers us, we will complete the work that he started and we will be thrilled and excited to watch him work in us and through us for eternal purposes. And not only that, we should be encouraged that as we work in the Lord's work by the power of the Spirit, we'll accomplish eternal things. That in our work, whatever it may be, and however small we think it is, it is like laying bricks in the future kingdom of God in some way, shape, and form that we don't understand. And that's why the Bible tells us to lay up treasures in heaven and not on earth because the treasures in heaven that we lay will be a foundation that can never be taken away. And so we're being encouraged to engage in the work. So the theme of the whole book for us comes from Zechariah 4, 6. Can anybody tell me what that is? Not by might, nor by power, but... Are you guys cheating? Okay, says the Lord, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so, as we see that as the theme verse for this book, this book starts out with eight visions in chapters 1 through 6, which we've covered. And these visions were all visions given to Zechariah to give to the children of Israel and to us of eight different encouragements for us to keep going. And so now we get into a section of the book where there are four revelations and those four revelations are found in chapter seven and eight, which we plan to cover tonight. And then two prophecies which cover chapters 9 through 14, which we should be able to get chapter 9 tonight as well. In those prophecies, you can break those prophecies down to chapters 9 through 11, where it prophesies the first coming of Jesus Christ. Did that happen yet? It sure did. That's why we celebrate Christmas. So he did come once. Just seeing, make sure you're awake. But then in chapters 12 and 14, then we have the prophecy about his second coming. Did he come a second time? He did not. 
If you came a second time already and this is a millennial kingdom, we're in trouble. Okay, so let me just say this is not the millennial kingdom. Praise God for that. Because if this is the best that God can do, then we're all in trouble. So, no, he didn't come the second time. We're living in between his first coming and his second coming. We're thankful for his first coming. He came first to save the lost. And he's going to come again to set up his kingdom on earth. And I can't wait for that. So, let's look at chapter 7 and this revelation that is given to Zechariah for the children of Israel and for us. So, it says, now, in the fourth year of King Darius, he was the Persian king. The Persians were in control of the world at this time. Why were they in control of the world at this time? Because they conquered the Babylonians. Because they conquered the Babylonians. So the Babylonians were the ones who took the children of Israel into captivity for 70 years. But during that 70 years, the Medes, M-E-D-E-S, combined with the Persians, so you'll hear the saying it will be called the Medes and the Persians, they conquered the Babylonians, and they were in power, and that's why Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians, gave the children of Israel the decree to go back to Jerusalem to build the temple. So they're in power now. So Darius is the is a king of the Medes and the Persians. And so the fourth year of his reign, it came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, which, by the way, his name means God has remembered or God remembers. And this word came on the fourth day of the ninth month of Chislev, which would be our equivalent of December. So on the 4th of December, 518 B.C., so 518 years before Christ came, Zechariah gets this word, and it says, When the people sent a Sherezer with Regim Melech and his men to the house of God to pray before the Lord... And to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? So there was a delegation of Jews that lived sort of outside the area, in an area called Bethel. And their names were described. And they came to Jerusalem, where the temple was being rebuilt, where Zerubbabel was, where Ezra was, where Nehemiah was, where Haggai was. So they come up, and they come up because the temple's there, and that's where you need to worship the Lord where the temple was. That's why it's so important to rebuild it. That's why this delegation that came from Bethel was asking these questions because if you recall, when the nation of Israel was split into two, north and south, 
they set up false places of worship, and one of those places was Bethel. The, and they set up a golden calf, and, and they worshipped that golden calf because they didn't want to go down to the southern kingdom where the actual temple was. Can anybody tell me where the second place of worship, where there was a false altar, a golden calf was set up in that northern kingdom? So Bethel, anybody else? What did you say? Dan. Dan's it, yes. So Shiloh was where the first tabernacle was set up, and Dan is where the other place in the north was. So these were false places of worship. So they're coming up after the exile, after they've been judged, after they went through a a lot of judgment, they had a lot of time to think about what they had done. And so they come up and they actually had a question. So they wanted to know about fasting. And that's the question that they asked. They, They said, should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? And so during their exile to Babylon, they instituted feasts in the fourth month, the fifth month, the seventh month, and the tenth month. So there were four different fastings, times of fasting that they set up. And each one of those fastings were in relationship to their judgment in Babylon. So like their the first fasting in the fourth month had to do with fasting in regards to when the Babylonians came and captured them. So... So they, they were in remembering their sin and they were instituting these, these days of fasting, which weren't biblical, by the way. These were not biblically instituted fasts. Up to this point, there was only one biblically instituted fast, and that was in the book of Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 through 34, and it had to do with the Day of Atonement. And that was it. So... So now they're sort of adding in their guilt, in their time of judgment, they're adding these days and these traditions and things to do. And now that they're out of captivity, they're coming to Jerusalem and saying, do we still need to do that? Because now the temple's uh, doing a lot better and people are working and God restored the land. So that was their question. So, In verse 4 it says, Then the word of the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of armies, came to me saying, so the word came to Zechariah, and, and to answer their question, here's what the Lord is saying. Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those Seventy years, did you really fast for me? Now, that's an interesting question. That would be like saying, tonight, did you come for the Lord? That would be like saying, Sunday, when you came to church, why did you come to church? This is is what's being asked by God to them as they're talking about these 
these fastings that they set up. Why did you do that? That's a good question to ask ourselves. Why are we here tonight? It's a good question to to really check our heart and check our motives and, and to see what God thinks about that. And this is why it's so important that we understand when, when we come to fellowship, we come for the Lord. And when we come for the Lord, we come to worship Him. And we, we remember that, that, that He's, he's a, a person. He's a personal God, and we have a personal relationship with Him. And when we gather together, we gather because of Him to worship Him. And that's why I have a problem with a consumer-driven church that runs their church like a business and they compete for customers. And so if you can appeal to people in such a way where they'll come to church and there's a lot of different ways to do that, but if you're not appealing to people in your church because your church is a church that's worshiping God, and that's why we're here, but instead you're marketing your church like a business trying to attract customers, I like what uh, the founder of Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith, said. What you get them with is what you'll have to keep them with. So in other words, if, if you do all these gimmicky, cheesy things to get people to come to church, you know what you're going to have to do to keep them to stay there? Gimmicky, cheesy things. But if they come for the Lord and they come from, for the Word, then you don't have to artificially stimulate them to come. They're coming for the Lord. For the Lord. And if they're coming for the Lord, there's going to be a hunger. And what are we going to be hungry for? We're going to be hungry for His Word. We're going to be hungry for His truth. We're going to be hungry to share together in that. And so that was the question being asked. So in verse uh, 6, it says, When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Which sounds kind of weird because they were fasting. They had fasts, but it'd be kind of those things like after the fast was over, then they'd have a feast to celebrate their fast. Kind of like, um, what's that thing they do in Louisiana? Mardi Gras. So kind of like Mar- like you Lent and you restain for a certain amount of time. And then once you're done, all hedonism breaks loose. That's exactly what's happening here. He's saying, you know, you're going through these ceremonies and you're, you're saying, I'm going to give up something. And then when the time expires, you party like it's 1999. When, when that clock hits, now you're indulging yourself in your flesh and you're getting... And, and he's saying, why are you even doing these feasts and why are you asking me now if you should still do them? So he says in verse 7, he says... Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and its cities around it were inhabited and prosperous and the south and the lowland were inhabited, which is that's considered the Dead Sea area, which is very desolate. The Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth. And, and he's saying there was a time where there's all these people there and all this agriculture there. And even those, those places were doing well because the Lord was blessing. And he, he's saying that because of your fathers 
disobedience, you ended up being judged. And then when you're judged, then you instituted these, these fasts to make you kind of feel better. But now he's bringing them back because they're in the land now. They've been judged. And God is now, he's trying to teach them and set them up for future success. And he's talking about the importance of obedience and not just going through ritualistic, ceremonial type of religion. He's saying obedience is better than sacrifice. So in verse 8, he says, Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion, everyone to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. In other words, what he's saying is, a true relationship with God will manifest itself in our actions towards other people. So if we truly have a relationship with God and we're walking with God, that's going to affect how we treat other people. We'll treat other people fairly, kindly, lovingly. We'll, we'll be concerned about them, what the children of Israel are doing, because they were selfish and self-centered, was they were, when they could, they were taking advantage of people. They were using people. They were even using their religion to take advantage of people. And they were judged for those things. And God says, now, if you really want to fast, if you want to have, well, it's better to treat people better. It's better to let my love that I have for you manifest itself in your love for one another. So in verse 11, he says, But they refused to heed, and they shrugged their shoulders. So we get this, this picture, and we know from going through the prophets previously, that God would continue to warn them, continue to send their prophets. And they didn't want to hear it. It's the same thing now. It's the same thing now. It's people don't want to hear from the Lord. The people don't want to see what the Bible says. And so we're in a condition or position in our country now where there's a lot of shoulder shrugging. I don't want to hear that. Get that stuff out of here. And this is going on in the church. Where the philosophies of the world have infiltrated the church to, to an extent. Where people, it's like it's a rare and an unusual thing. For the church to actually go through the Bible. Don't you think that's kind of weird? Like shouldn't that just be a normal thing? But it's not. And it's not because the Bible tells us in the end times. People will not endure sound doctrine. 
But that's a very unusual thing. There, there's the persecuted church around the world. They have a page of the Bible t- torn out. And they value that like their most valuable possession. And yet, we are flooded with Bibles. And many refuse to pick it up. This is, this is what's happening. So we can see the implications in our time and in our country right now. These are the implications. It's the same thing. We're in that same boat. So it says, they shrugged their shoulders, and then it says, and they stopped their ears so that they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, flint's a, like a hard rock, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus, great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. So, what can we conclude if we refuse to hear the Lord? Why would we think that we would be different? If we refuse to hear the Lord, if we refuse to acknowledge His truth and His way, what can we expect? Well, we can, we're seeing that. So in verse 13 it says, Therefore, it happened that just as he proclaimed, and they would not hear, so they called out, and I would not listen. So imagine that. When they got in trouble, they cried out to the Lord, and God would not listen. Why is that? Because they didn't want to walk with the Lord. They didn't want to hear from the Lord. They just wanted the Lord to fix their situation. But if God fixes their situation, what's going to happen after that? If they don't yield themselves to the Lord, it's just going to be worse. So God wasn't listening because He had already given them everything that they needed to do. And primarily, it was to repent. And if they wouldn't repent, what else was there for God to do? Nothing left. So in verse 14 it says, But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate after them so that no one passed through or returned for they made the pleasant land desolate. How, how do we make a pleasant land desolate? By not heeding the word. By not heeding the word. This is how a pleasant land becomes desolate. And you know, we're seeing that in our country. We're seeing this land of the free and home of the brave and this beautiful country of ours in many places being destroyed for this one reason. And the problem is many people are not connecting the dots. If you don't connect the dots, it realizes because you're not heeding the word. But instead, you say, well... It's because we need a new government or we need a new system or we need something to to change or whatever. But the problem is the land will always be desolate if we don't heed the Lord. And then also when we heed the Lord, the land becomes prosperous. And so we may not be able to affect the whole world, but we can affect our families. We can affect our church 
here. This could be the land flowing with milk and honey if we heed the word. But we also have the potential to really mess things up if we insist on not yielding to the Lord. And then the book of Revelation tells us in the church that God will remove his candlestick. So what happens then? Well, we can still have a church, but when God removes his candlestick, we don't have the power of God. So then we have to do all this fake stuff to pretend it's the power of God. And then call it the power of God. And then pat ourselves on the back. Say, look what we did. Oh, we did. We're doing this awesome stuff. And God's saying, I'm not even there. And you know what? When the rapture happens, a lot of those churches are going to still exist. And they're going to carry on business as normal. Business as usual. I would like to say that if God removed his presence from our church, we wouldn't be a church anymore. It's our desire and our prayer that no flesh would glory in his presence. We just want what the Lord wants. We want the Lord's will. We want the Lord's power. We don't want anything more or anything less. We just want what he wants. And so we let him have his way. And the best way that we give him the authority in our church is is we give him his voice in the church. And we see what he says and we say, okay, Lord. Yes, Lord. Chapter 8. So now, in chapter 8, after that exhortation and reminder of their past, now he points them and encourages them forward. So we can be, be encouraged about the failure of our past and to move forward from that. And we can be encouraged about our future. So he's using God's doing both. And he's saying, okay, now the past the past. So Paul said we must press on to the upward calling, not looking behind. So if we've had a bad past and we're a Christian, we have to know that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That maybe it was our past that brought us to the cross and brought us to the place of salvation. So don't be condemned by your past, but know that now you need to move past your past and that God has a great future for you. And that's what we get in chapter eight. So it says again, the word of the Lord of hosts, it came saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion, which is Israel with a great zeal with great fervor. I am zealous for her. So, so when I read that now, I want to be able to position myself with God. So that means if he is zealous for Israel, I'm going to be zealous for Israel. Why am I going to be zealous for Israel? Because he's zealous for Israel. And that really is going against a lot of the world now being zealous for Israel. But you know, it, it doesn't matter if you're a Palestinian. doesn't matter if you're from the Middle East, if you're from Jordan, or I know there's some deep-seated issues there, but if you're a Christian, your identity is in Christ, and your command is in the Word of God. So your identity in Christ trumps your identity in the world, trumps your ethnicity, trumps whatever you may think, 
And so wherever you are on the earth, this earth, because God is in to Israel, we need to be in, is, in into Israel. And God is zealous for them. It says in verse 3, thus says the Lord, I will return Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So now we're looking towards the future. So in the context, in the immediate context, God is telling these post-exilic Jews who have come back after the exile to rebuild the temple and there wasn't much going on. It didn't look like much. The land didn't look like much. There weren't many people there. There wasn't much prosperity. And God is telling them, he's saying, get to work. Because you're going to build this temple. I'm going to give you the power to do it. It may not look like it's possible. It may not look like it's great, like a big work. But in your obedience to me, your, our obedience to God is always a great work. Our obedience to God is always a great work and has eternal implications. And so he, he's telling them to get back to work. And he, he's saying that there is going to be, through the rebuilding of Jerusalem and, and of Israel and the temple, he's saying that he's going to be with them. But he's also pointing them to the future. He's pointing them to the millennial kingdom. He's pointing them to a time that is still future for us where Jesus is going to come back again. And when Jesus comes back again, he's going to set up his kingdom on earth. Is his kingdom on earth now? It is not. Thank God. If this is God's kingdom on earth, we're in trouble. In God's kingdom, it's not like this. That's why we have such a difficult time managing our lives because we're trying to manage messes. This is a broken, fallen world and it, it will always be until Jesus comes back a second time. And so we do the best we can to manage messes. We try to walk with the Lord and we save ourselves a lot of self-inflicted problems when we walk with the Lord. But we are still not immune from problems, from difficulties, from heartaches. Why? Because this is not heaven. This is not where God rules and reigns directly. This is where Satan is the prince of the air, manipulating and stirring things. That's why it's so important for us to have a walk with the Lord. That's why it's so important for us to know how to put on the armor of God. That's why it's so important for us to know that we have the power of God to salvation and Satan has no claim or right on us. And this is why we get into our word so that our minds are meditating on the word day and night. This is why we are told to pray without ceasing because Satan wants to manipulate and control us through thoughts, through accusations, through many different devices. But he has no claim on the believer because greater is he that is in me and you than he that is in the world. So he has no claim on us. But we need to be walking in the light. 
So as that is happening, God is now pointing to the future. So in one, the short-term lens is that they will, will rebuild the temple and there will be more population there, more people inhabiting the area. But through that lens, he's looking to the future. Now, why is that important? It's a lot of reasons, but one is that Bible prophecy in the Bible that has been fulfilled, it has been fulfilled literally. And that's how we know that the Bible prophecy that is still future from now, it's, it's actually tagged to the already fulfilled historical prophecies. It's tagged to that. So that means we know that future prophecy is literal also because past fulfillment of prophecy was literal and future prophecy is tagged to that. So theologians like to say that there are near and far prophecies and we're seeing that. So the near prophecy is is this prophecy during this time that Zechariah is giving giving to the Jews who are rebuilding and he's saying keep rebuilding and people are going to come and they're going to inhabit this place but he's also pointing to a future where God will rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. So that gets pretty interesting. So a couple things in verse 3 that I find fascinating is in God's kingdom and when God works, two particular things are pointed out here. The city of truth and a holy mountain. So where God is, there's truth. And that's why truth is attacked throughout the ages it has been. From the Garden of Eden, it was attacked. And that is a strategy of Satan to attack the truth. And we live in a time where many people think that there is not an absolute truth, but a truth is dependent on what each individual thinks is truth. And so you might run into people that wear a shirt that says, I love my truth. But that, their truth might not be the truth. And just because they think it's the truth doesn't mean it's the truth. The truth does not reside in mankind. The truth resides in God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So that's a very important distinction. And that's why, or one of the reasons, our world is so messed up. Because because of the truth. The truth will set you free. If, If the truth is not something that you're recognizing is in God and not in yourself and not in the world, then there's going to be chaos there. There has to be, logically, right? If you have your truth and I have my truth, then we're going to be at odds. There's no way that can work out. But if we surrender or yield what we think 
to a higher authority that is the truth, then we can all get along. But this is why the world can never work. It's because of truth. There's nothing to unite on. And if you unite on something that's not true, that'll fall apart. But see, this is how the church should work. That we're uniting over something above us. And no matter what I think, no matter what you think, we can all come together and say, this is what God thinks. And so I need to die to my will. And his truth often crushes my will and the way I think about things. And I'm glad. Because the Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is destruction. And so don't love your truth. Love the truth that God has revealed in His Son and in His Word. So in His kingdom, there's going to be the truth and then there's going to be holiness, it says. So in verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem. Each one with his staff in his hand, because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. So this is a description of the Millennial Kingdom. Isn't that a cool description? I love this because here we see two groups in our society that are often deemed as unuseful. These two groups, the elderly and I would say the children or in utero children even, are in great danger in our country. And that's satanic. In God's kingdom, the old and the young are going to be enjoying the things of God. And isn't it interesting that Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 verse 3 says the kingdom of God is for those who have childlike faith. And some of you may grow up in a time where you could go outside and, and play and your parents would not know where you are and they would say come home when the what? Streets, street lights are on. Not a lot of parents do that anymore. Why? Because they're afraid. Because of the streets. Because of the evil out there. Because of what's going on. But in the millennial kingdom, this is going to be so cool. Kids are just going to be... Don't you love watching kids play? We can learn a lot from kids. One commentator, I forgot who he was right now, but he said that if you really want to learn about the kingdom of God, don't go into an adult prayer room. Go into a child's playroom. For thus, for such is the kingdom of God. So he's pointing to this kingdom, this future kingdom, and he's saying this in, in regards to the work that they should be doing now. And this should encourage us in our work now that we're 
contributing to build up the future somehow spiritually, the things of the Lord. He says in verse 5, The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it, is a, if it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of his people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. So God is saying that the work in the millennial kingdom is going to be such a, a work where people just marvel at it. And he's saying God's going to marvel at that too. That it's going to bring him much pleasure and much joy in that time. In verse 7, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who have been hearing in these days. So there, there's the encouragement in the work. He's saying, don't grow weary in well-doing. In due season, you shall reap if you don't lose heart. He's encouraging, encouraging them that there's going to be a time where everything that we are looking for and hoping for and desiring it's going to happen. And so because of that, right now, get to work. Right now, understand that this is not heaven, that this is a time to work for the kingdom of God. This is a time that we have, that it's a unique time, a time we only have now to do what we can do now. Because one day we'll be in the kingdom. But it's not now. So get to work. Build up. His kingdom on earth. Build up people. Build up the body of Christ. Use your spiritual gift to build up the things of God. Do that now because later is going to be your retirement. Later is going to be where you're going to have no more tears and no more sorrow. Not now. So be about the work. That's coming. And it will happen. But that's not the time now. So let your hands be strong. You have been hearing these days, these words by the mouth of the prophets who spoke in the day of the that the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts that the temple might be built. For before these days there were, there were no wages for man, nor any hire for beasts. There was no peace from the enemy for whoever went out and came in for I set all men everyone against his neighbor speaking about the time that they were being judged by the Babylonians and in captivity then he's saying in verse 11 but now I will treat the remnant of this people as in the former days says the Lord of hosts what he's saying is those times of judgment, they're over now. So get to work. Be profitable. Be a servant of God. You, you don't have to worry 
about the enemy destroying you anymore. And you don't have to worry about the times where somebody will take the things that you work for. He's saying, get to work and I will bless the work of your hand. In verse 12, he says, for the seed shall be prosperous. The vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give her increase and the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these. And it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear and let your hands be strong. So what they're given now is these promises that they're supposed to look at as the reason for them to continue in the work. It's the promises. And that's important because we can't go by how we feel because we will quit. That's not a a strong enough motivation to continue on in the work of the Lord because there are times we just don't feel like it. There are times that we don't have the same amount of enthusiasm. And so we can't go. That cannot be our motivation. Willpower cannot be our motivation. We don't have enough willpower to overcome the power of darkness. And so God says, I'm giving you a promise. I'm giving you these promises. And let these promises be your motivation. And that's something very insightful for us to learn as believers now. So now we we put it in in our court, like today, for, for us. And we think about the cross and where Jesus paid the price for our sins and how we are born again and given the Spirit of God and given the power of God and given the gifts of God and given the information about the future of God and given the promises of God. And God says, now work because in that work for the Lord is where we will find our greatest purpose and let the motivation to keep going his promises. And all the promises in God are what? Yes and amen. So what that means is, We are to look for what God is doing. We are to look for what God is calling us to do and simply do that. And I would say that's one of the greatest things that has kept me going in my walk all these years. All the discouragements, all the heartbreaks all the disappointments, it's the promise, promises of God that keep me going. Because God will strip us of all the false things that keep us doing His work. He'll strip those away. If we have a false motivation for being here tonight, He'll strip it away so that the only thing left is we're here because of Him. But 
when he strips those false things away, now our faith becomes pure. And when our faith is not mixed with things, and we have a pure faith to God, now we are truly strong, because now it is Him that is sustaining us, and not some false thing in ourselves that's sustaining us. But that that is often a process. We have to learn those things. And so, it's okay to feel like things are being stripped away. That's a normal feeling when we're walking with the Lord and growing in the Lord. And sometimes that's surprising. We don't expect that. But it's a normal feeling because our faith will be tested through the fire. So like Peter said, what comes out of that fire is just a genuine faith that is to the praise, glory, and honor of God. That's a pure faith. That's a James chapter 1, verse 2 faith, where we can count it all joy when we go through various trials. It's because God's working in us by burning away that which is not of the Lord. The chaff, the bad stuff. And, and, and we have so many things that we often bring into our relationship with God that are not of God. And God strips those things away. And that's what he's telling the children of Israel. So, he says in verse 14, I think I was. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Just as I determined to punish you, when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent, so again in these days... I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So do not fear. These are the things you shall do. Speak to each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. And do not love a false oath, for all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. Then the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord of hosts, came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, of the fifth, of the seventh, of the tenth, Those are the ones they all instituted that were unbiblical. And he kind of gets back to that original question, should we keep doing these fasts? And then he says, those fasts you're doing shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Don't you love that? Forget the fasts. You're doing these fasts that I didn't institute as sort of a checklist, check-the-box item, and they don't do you any good unless you obey the Lord. But now then he's pointing them forward and encouraging them to do the work now, and he's saying, I'm going to turn your mourning into dancing. 
He's saying, and, and for us, we can literally say that now in our relationship with God as we are on the other side of the cross. That we now, that God has turned our mourning into dancing. That we have a relationship with Him. That He has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. That He has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in one sense, that's what He's telling us. He's telling us to enjoy our salvation and rejoice in the Lord. That's how we should live our life. Rejoice in the Lord because we are saved and forgiven. And that that fast and that doesn't mean that that we aren't to have times where we fast. But in the context, what it's saying is he's telling the children of Israel, it's a new day. You've been judged for your sin. Now move forward for the believer. How much more so that Jesus has taken our punishment, that he has been judged for us in our place. It's a new day for us. And so we don't even need to look to the future because right now we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have that right now. And then we also get to be raptured and we also get to skip the tribulation and we also get to enjoy the millennial kingdom and after that, we also get to enjoy the new heaven and new earth. It's now, so now's the time for us to rejoice right now. It's now's the time to live for the kingdom of heaven. Because he died for us. And he rose again. And he conquered death. So in verse 20, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come. Inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts. Where? In Jerusalem. Isn't that cool? So we know there's a place on earth right now that one day all the nations of the earth will come there to worship God. Isn't that cool? They shall all come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts in those days, get this, Ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So that's in the millennial kingdom. So God's not finished with Israel. And it's crazy to think that he is. And Bible prophecy is Israel. Israel-centric, to understand Bible prophecy, is to understand how God is going to deal with Israel. And all the nations are going to come up and worship God in Israel, and they're going to find a Jewish guy. And they're going to grab his sleeve. Take me where you're going. Take me to the house of the Lord. 
Where is he going? And, and the, the Jewish people are going to be seen as God's people. And God will restore. We're going to finish there. Take a deep breath. We didn't get to chapter 9, but that's okay. So what is all this about and what does all this mean? It's just so crazy to think that we live in a time now where we, we are reading prophecies before they happen. You realize that? We are reading the same things that those in three, the 300s B.C. were hearing. We're hearing the same thing. And, but we're able to look back and say God did exactly all those things. But then we're also able to say he did all those things just like he said he was going to do. But wait a second. He's saying he still has stuff to do in the future. And there's more prophecy about Jesus' second coming than his first coming. So we live in a time where we can look at all those prophecies and how they were fulfilled literally and say, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. And everything we see going on in the world is, is him setting things up and aligning things perfectly. And we may not understand fully and completely, but please, brothers and sisters, God has a plan and a work for you, make that your priority and make that what you live for because what you do now echoes in eternity. So do the work of the Lord. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy. Amen. That's the message tonight. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for your word. And I pray that your word would be the lens in which we view the world. Lord, when we see the world through that lens, it just puts everything into place and everything makes sense, Lord. We do pray, Lord, for the lost. We know that we live in a wicked and perverse generation, Lord. And I just want to pray for those stuck in a LGBT lifestyle as the world is telling them that that is wonderful and celebrating that, Lord, we know that that is a sin that needs to be repented of just like all of our sins, Lord. And we should not glorify sin. We should not be proud about sin. We must repent of our sins. And so we pray that we would have compassion on those that are stuck in that lifestyle that have Believe the lie and ask, Lord, now that you would deliver them from that lifestyle and the grips of darkness unto eternal life. And, Lord, we thank you and praise you for saving us, for we were lost and wicked and in need of a Savior, and you saved us, Lord. We thank you for that. So all glory, praise, and honor is due to your name, Lord Jesus. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great night. And please pray for the baptism.